You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. This is a weekly program bringing you articles of interest from a variety of sources. This one's being recorded for the listening week that begins February 24th. Your reader's name is Susan Shiree, beginning with news from Beyonce. First one comes from the Washington Post. Beyonce's new country song salutes the genre's black cultural roots. This was posted February 12th, written by Janae Kingsbury. Houston native Beyonce has always repped her country roots. Will her forthcoming Act 2 redefine what country music means? If you were surprised by the two country-infused songs Beyonce dropped on Sunday night, hold your horses. This isn't her first rodeo. In fact, fans have long speculated that such a genre-shifting project from the pop icon was imminent. There was the custom Louis Vuitton's fit she wore to the Grammys last week, complete with a ribbon tie, a studded leather jacket, and a matching skirt, plus a Stetson cowboy hat. A source told Variety in 2022 that Beyoncé had recorded, quote, country-leaning tracks. Not to mention the Houston native has always repped her country roots with the lyrics, parentheses, I'm going back to the South where my roots ain't watered down. Her past performances with artists such as Sugarland and the Chicks, her rodeo appearances and her Western aesthetics in her Ivy Park clothing line. Parentheses again. Quote, the Houston Rodeo is a gumbo of family, connection, delicious food, and eclectic genres of music. End quote. She said of the latter project's inspiration, end parentheses. After teasing new music in a Verizon ad that aired during Super Bowl 58, uh, pardon me, 53 on Sunday, pardon me, that's 58, on Sunday, Beyonce has dropped two fast-charting country and Americana-inspired hits, Texas Hold'em and 16 Carriages. The singles are the first releases of her long-anticipated Act 2 project, debuting March 29th as a follow-up to her acclaimed Act 1, Renaissance album from 2022. Texas Hold'em is a beat-stomping, banjo-heavy track likely to inspire a new TikTok dance trend as Beyonce sings, quote, It's a real-life boogie and a real-life hoedown. Meanwhile, 16 Carriages, a soaring, intimate ballad about Beyonce's childhood, features steel guitar and a powerful organ that nod to Southern gospel influences. Fans and music experts say the two releases further confirm rumors that Act 2 will be a full-length country album and will herald another culture-shifting event in music. Quote, I anticipate that this album is going to take us in a direction that both refines and redefines what country is and takes country up to another level, end quote, said Alice Randall, a songwriter, author, and professor of African-American and diaspora studies at Vanderbilt University. She goes on, 
that it deconstructs and reconstructs country. That is what modern sounds in country and western do. Randall pointed to the impact of Beyonce's first country song, Daddy Lessons, a twangy single that many critics regarded as one of the best tracks on the star's 2016 Lemonade album. It is historic, pardon me, in an historic and widely shared moment at the Country Music Awards. Beyonce performed the song with the Chicks, who later released their own cover. And it is credited for influencing the, quote, Yeehaw Agenda, an internet movement to reclaim black cowboy culture through music and fashion. But Daddy Lessons also exposed the deep divides that still roil the country music industry. There was an outcry from some country music fans who thought the song didn't belong in the genre, and the Recording Academy seemingly agreed, rejecting the song from consideration in the country music categories at the Grammys. The events echo the barriers black artists have often faced in the genre's more than 100 years history from Ray Charles to Lil Nas X. Darius Rucker, a Grammy-winning country singer with 10 number one hit songs, has often recounted the resistance he met after stepping out solo from rock band Hootie and the Blowfish to pursue country music. He said, quote, When I started doing the radio stations and stuff, I had people say to me, to my face, my audience would never accept a black country singer. End quote. Rucker told ET Canada that in an interview last year. But black artists have long influenced the genre, starting with the banjo. Musicologists speculate that the precursor to the plucked stringed instrument originated in Africa and arrived on American shores during the 17th century with enslaved people taken from West and Central Africa. Quote, As I understand black country music, it goes back to the arrival Pardon me, to the arrival of the first black child to an enslaved African woman in these Americas, said Randall, whose upcoming book, My Black Country, chronicles the black influence in country music's past, present, and future. In her book, she examines the unsung roles of Louis Armstrong and Lil Hardin Armstrong on Jimmy Rogers' Blue Yodel Number no. 9, which scholars consider one of the most influential country songs of all time. Spotlights Florence Givens Joplin as a lost foremother of the genre and recounts modern-day contributions from the likes of Beyoncé, whose work has long echoed a commitment to honoring and drawing upon music legends and black history. In Texas Hold'em, for instance, Beyoncé features acclaimed Grammy and Pulitzer Prize-winning musician Rhiannon Giddens on the banjo and viola. The Greensboro, North Carolina native is considered an icon in folk music and has dedicated her work to honoring unsung heroes in American musical history. A viral post on social media published hours after Beyoncé's release shined a light on Giddens' advocacy. Quote, this whole album is going to be like a class on the roots of country music, end quote, replied one user. Indeed, just as she recognized black queer and ballroom culture with Renaissance, 
Randall suspects a potential country music album from the singer will highlight black artistry in the genre. Randall said, quote, She's a true cultural curator, even going back to Lemonade and Daddy Lessons. Many people forget that a significant portion of cowboys were people of color. Beyonce's album and video helped some people remember that, or provoked them to learning that. In doing so, Randall says, Beyonce is spotlighting and building on a profound tradition, a path that the scholar believes was first forged by Ray Charles. Randall said, quote, To me, one of the greatest albums in the history of country music is Ray Charles's Modern Sounds in Country and Western Music. End quote. Charles's music experimented with jazz, gospel, and rhythm, and blues, pardon me, rhythm and blues, before he released the acclaimed country album in 1962. She went on, quote, I think that Beyonce's album is a similar kind of moment. She is going to do with this album what Ray Charles did with his album, and I think she's going to take it even further if the things she's already done in country is any indication, end quote. But Randall is wary about the reception Beyonce may face, noting that Ray Charles didn't get those flowers initially. She went on, I hope the country music establishment embraces this album and Beyonce's presence as we should have embraced Ray Charles from the beginning. Parentheses. Charles wasn't inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame until 2022, though critics have often cited his work for reviving and introducing the genre to new listeners. In parentheses. Closing with, I hope that Beyonce gets the welcome Ray Charles didn't get. And I, your reader pulled up a little piece from, um, I thought it was from Wikipedia, but it turns out this is from the Smithsonian on banjos for a little bit of detail on that conjecture earlier. Few musical instruments are more deeply connected to the American experience than the banjo. The banjo was created by enslaved Africans and their descendants in the Caribbean and colonial North America. Here they maintained and perpetuated the tradition within a complex system of slave labor camps, plantations, and in a variety of rural and urban settings. From the earliest references in the 17th century and through the 1830s, the banjo was exclusively known as an African-American tradition with a West African heritage. What further distinguishes the banjo is that it did not come from Africa as is, as an unaltered tradition. Rather, the banjo's creation was the result of a blending between West African and European forms, sharing some similarities with the guitar. The best documented form of the early banjo includes a drum-like body made out of a gourd, or sometimes a calabash, and a neck that could accommodate four strings, three long strings that run the full length of the instrument, and one short thumb string that stops about halfway up the side of the neck. The drum-like gourd body and strings of different lengths are uniquely African, while the flat fingerboard and tuning pegs are more commonly associated with European traditions. And one final follow-up article on that topic from TheRoot.com. Dolly Parton had this to say about Beyoncé and her country music song. Can't wait to hear the full album, said Dolly Parton. Neither can we. 
This was written by Chanel Janai and published on the 23rd. Beyoncé's country music era might be her most iconic yet, thanks to a major cosign she received from one of the genre's biggest and most beloved legends, Dolly Parton. In an Instagram post on Thursday, the Jolene singer weighed in on the conversation surrounding Bay's latest country singles, 16 Carriages and Texas Hold'em, showing nothing but love to the Renaissance artist. I'm a big fan of Beyoncé and very excited that she's done a country album. So congratulations on your Billboard Hot Country number 1 single, said Parton, referencing Bay's latest history-making feat, as Texas Hold'em's success made her the first black woman artist with a number one country song. Parton went on, quote, can't wait to hear the full album. Okay, that's it. Everybody else can really pack up their opinions now. The Queen of Country has spoken and bestowed her blessing. The rest of you naysayers can go home. With Parton's co-sign, one wonders if we'll see a joint musical collab from them soon. And if you had any doubts on if either artist would be open to doing so, the In the Sweet By and By singer already expressed the desire to redo Jolene with Bay in an interview with eTalk back in December. She said, quote, Oh, that would be great. I might do it just for that reason. I love her. I'd be honored said Parton when asked about her and Queen Bay covering the song. She quipped also, quote, If not, I'll go drag her down and make her sing anyway. Pardon me, that's actually. If not, I'll go drag her down and make her sing anyhow. You get down here and sing with me, girl, quipped Parton. Well, Yancey, you heard Dolly. The Yeehaw agenda is calling, and we hope you answer. Parentheses. We know you will. Still reading from TheRoot.com. This one written by Candace McDuffie. It was published on the 23rd. Damn, someone vandalized the MLK Jr. Memorial in Denver. Authorities are trying to determine if the theft is racially motivated. An historic Martin Luther King Jr. I Have a Dream monument in Denver's City Park was vandalized Tuesday, leaving authorities to determine if the action was racially motivated. Missing pieces of the statue include a bronze panel showing black military veterans, as well as a bronze torch and angel, according to the Denver Post. In a statement to the newspaper, chair of the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Colorado Holiday Commission, Vern Howard, said a member of the community told him about the shocking incident Wednesday morning. He said, quote, you can steal, you can take, you can pull, you can hate, you can do everything that you believe necessary to detour the message of Dr. King and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Colorado Holiday Commission, end quote. He went on, we're going to continue to march, to honor, and to work toward freedom, toward justice, toward the end of racism, toward the end of hatred and the end of discrimination. We will never give up. End quote. The memorial was devised by artist Ed Dwight, who was this country's first black NASA astronaut candidate in 2020, pardon me, that's 2002, and features a bronze statue of King in addition to smaller statues of Rosa Parks, Mahatma Gandhi, 
Frederick Douglass, and Sojourner Truth. On Thursday, Dwight told ABC News, quote, Obviously, I am extremely disappointed, but it was sitting there waiting to be vandalized. It attracts people from all over the world that come here just to see this memorial. So for somebody to come and vandalize it is just disgusting to tell you the truth, end quote. Currently, the Denver Police Department's bias-motivated crime unit is helping with the investigation to figure out who the guilty party is and if bias played a role in their actions. Just last month, a Jackie Robinson statue was stolen from a Wichita, Kansas park. It was later found burned and destroyed, according to KAKE. Wichita police arrested and charged Ricky Alderetti, a 45-year-old white man with felony theft, identity theft, making false information and aggravated criminal damage. Next, from the New York Times, a more in-depth article, opinion piece, drawn from history. This was published February 16th, written by Brent Staples. It says here, Mr. Staples is a member of the editorial board. The Lost Story of New York's Most Powerful Black Woman Elizabeth Gloucester was born into slavery. By the end of her life, she embodied a new model of black feminist capitalism. Elizabeth Amelia Gloucester, I'm not sure if that's pronounced Gloucester, forgive me, appeared in the census for the final time on June 8, 1880. The census enumerators who crisscrossed Brooklyn Heights were no doubt surprised to find a wealthy black woman presiding over Remsen House, the grand boarding hotel not for far from Brooklyn City Hall, that served the white professional classes. Miss Gloucester was a pillar of the black elites, who had prospered during the decades before the Civil War, when nine-tenths of African Americans were still enslaved. Remsen House was the jewel of the real estate portfolio she had established when she was a struggling young shopkeeper in bare-knuckled Lower Manhattan. By the spring of 1880, she was an aging Heights eminence, running her empire from the Remsen House residence she shared with her husband and children. Census workers were accustomed to listing women as the heads of households in which husbands had died, the decision to grant Miss Gloucester this same designation, even though the Reverend James Gloucester was very much alive and present, reflected a rare recognition that she was the author of the family's wealth and master of its financial destiny. This represented a victory for a woman who had come of age during a time when husbands subsumed their wives and their assets. Miss Gloucester was probably 63 years old on Census Day, not 60, as the census taker reported, and suffering from the heart disease that would kill her in August 1883. The residence at 144 Remsen Street was brimming with flowers on her funeral day. The Brooklyn Daily Eagle described the mourners as a, quote, Congregation of people such as seldom before come together in Brooklyn. End quote. Fashionably dressed white people mingled with a who's who of the colored world, including several prominent ministers. 
testimonials offered a glimpse of how the, quote, wealthiest colored woman in the United States had dispensed her largesse. She aided the colored poor in both the North and South, conspired with forces that plotted the armed overthrow of slavery. She contributed to the Union effort during the war. The Daily Eagle praised her, quote, market energy and shrewdness in investing her earnings, then reverted to the anti-feminist dogma of the day, endorsing the view that women, quote, in the broader sense, were, quote, better fitted for the emotional rather than the practical side of life. The coffin with the gleaming silver fittings was conveyed to the family plot at Brooklyn's Greenwood Cemetery, bucolic showplace of the affluent dead. The inscription on the monument read, quote, The undying love of a mother is a thing to cherish and keep. We must guard her memory closer now that she has fallen asleep. But these pastoral sentiments would soon be eclipsed by a bitter legal fight over the matriarch's will. Historians have often cast Miss Gloucester as a minor player in a story of famous abolitionist men. This essay res rescues her from the margins by drawing on hundreds of pages of archival material, including real estate transactions, banking records, and genealogical research conducted across three states. The woman who emerges from these long-buried documents hails from a school of feminist heroes who gave no radical speeches, but pioneered women's rights in their daily lives. Her feminist capitalism is evident in her real estate transactions, and in the way she defended her interests from all comers, including her husband. Nineteenth-century obituary writers can be forgiven for believing that a wealthy black woman had to have gotten her start as a child of a free black elite. But a newly uncovered emancipation document makes clear that she came into the world as human property around 1817 in the Richmond, Virginia household of a general store operator named John Parkhill. Much of what we know of Parkhill's temperament comes from a biography of his favorite enslaved person, James Page, who recalls a happy, pardon me, a mainly happy childhood and revels in the fact that the master trusted him to run the general store. This idol takes a savage turn when Park Hill sells Page's mother and younger brother to raise capital for a new venture. He requires the young man to attend the auction to illustrate the fate that would befall him should he step out of line. Parkhill acted out of character in the fall of 1823 when he emancipated two of his Negroes, Becky, a woman of, quote, middle stature and about 30 years old, and Jane, a child of about seven years old. These were not the actions of a man who had renounced the slave trade. Indeed, the 1830 census would show him enslaving even more souls than he had in 1820. Virginia planters were notorious for fathering children with women they owned. When these guilt-ridden progenitors got religion or approached the grave, they sometimes freed their colored offspring, providing what the historian Annette Gordon-Reed describes as, quote, 
a head start on emancipation. The children born to Thomas Jefferson and his enslaved surrogate wife, Sally Hemings, are the most familiar beneficiaries of this early exit from bondage. Hemings and Jefferson were still in residence at Monticello when Park Hill emancipated Jane, who was almost certainly the person we know today as Elizabeth Gloucester, that she was listed in the census as Mulatto and chose to keep the Park Hill name up to the time she married James Gloucester, suggests that she may have been the master's child, as was reported in the press several years after her death. It is reasonable to conclude that the Becky, listed in the courthouse emancipation, was Elizabeth's mother. It is also significant that the Gloucester burial plot in Brooklyn's Greenwood Cemetery includes a young woman named Rebecca, who was almost certainly Elizabeth's daughter and who could well have been named for Becky. The story of how Elizabeth was transplanted from Richmond to Pennsylvania is shrouded in myth. An account in which Park Hill arranges for an African-American minister, the Reverend John Gloucester, to raise the child seems out of character for both parties. Aside from that, John died a year before the courthouse emancipation. Nevertheless, Elizabeth was somehow delivered from Virginia, where slavery would persist for decades to come, to Pennsylvania, where a gradual emancipation law had been passed in 1780. The Gloucester family was now presided over by John's son, Jeremiah, and his widow, Rhoda. Growing up in such a household, Elizabeth would have come of age immersed in the gospel of abolitionism. Her connections to an esteemed ministerial family, four Gloucester sons followed their father into the pulpit, would also have given her standing in the community. James, the youngest of the Gloucester sons, would later become her husband. Elizabeth was a teenager when she entered domestic service in the home of the Quaker gentleman, John Cook. The family is said to have paid her ten shillings a week while teaching her how to handle money. The following version of a conversation between Elizabeth and Miss Cook appeared in a newspaper story and was probably furnished by the Gloucester family. Quote, what does thee do with thy money, daughter? Miss Cook asked. I spend it, was the reply. Well, thee ought to save it, Miss Cook is quoted as saying. I would advise thee to get a bank book and put thy money in bank. End quote. The 1832 signature book at the Philadelphia Savings Fund Society shows Elizabeth Park Hill taking Miss Cook's advice. It also shows that Elizabeth was illiterate at that time. She made the mark of an X under a version of her name written perhaps by Mrs. Cook or by a clerk. The Savings Fund Society record reflects Elizabeth's progress toward literacy. In 1834, she was no longer signing with an X, but the signature was drawn with great concentration as though by someone new to writing. By 1835, her penmanship was more natural, though less sophisticated than it would be two decades later in the records of New York City's Chemical Bank. The Philadelphia streets through which Elizabeth passed while running errands for her employers placed her on intimate terms with the most important free black community in the United States. 
African-American women in particular were busily engaged in philanthropic organizations and mutual aid societies that laid the groundwork for political engagement. The city featured a great deal of black destitution, but also an emerging working class and a small but highly visible elite that was anchored by the family of the wealthy sailmaker and anti-slavery activist James Fortin, his wife Charlotte Van Dyne Fortin, and their three daughters. The Gloucesters were stationed below the Fortins on the social, la- pardon me, the social ladder and had reason to hold them in high regard. In 1810, James Fortin had helped the Reverend John Gloucester to buy his wife and children out of slavery in Tennessee. This was one of many gestures that reflected the well-documented Fortin commitment to strengthening the free black community. Elizabeth's young adulthood coincided with an extraordinary moment in the anti-slavery movement and the women's rights movement that was emerging from it. In December 1833, abolitionists from around the country convened in Philadelphia for the gathering that created the American Anti-Slavery Society. The founders marginalized women by confining them to female auxiliaries. The Fortin daughters joined with white women in the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society, an organization that would move women closer to formal politics. That was hazardous duty at a time when white mobs responded with murderous violence and hysterical charges of racial, quote, amalgamation. When black and white men and women addressed large, clout, pardon me, large crowds about the immorality of slavery, the Gloucesters and others who had come to know Elizabeth would have warned her of how easily the city's anti-blackness could escalate from insults to rock-throwing to murderous pro- pogroms like the one that erupted on a balmy August evening in 1834. That all began with white men who congregated on 7th Street between Shippen and Fitzwater, murmuring among themselves about, quote, hunting the nigs. As the historian Carrie K. Greenidge pardon me, explains in her recent book titled The Grimkes, the horde targeted a popular carousel ride known as the Flying Horses. As the mob grew, quoting, with brickbats, broom handles, and wooden planks at the ready, it began to spill in one inhuman mass down the street, its members screaming as they unleashed violent rage onto the black people and institutions in their path. End quote. The Fortins watched from their Lombard Street home as the rioters ravaged institutions they had devoted their lives to building, including St. Thomas Church, where their children had attended Sunday school. Elizabeth lived outside the riot area but understood that the life she was working hard to build could be obliterated without warning. Black Gotham Elizabeth Amelia Park Hill and James Gloucester married in Philadelphia probably about 1836 and moved to New York not long afterward. The couple's entry into Manhattan colored society would have been eased by their membership in an esteemed family of churchmen. James's father, the Reverend John Gloucester, had emerged from slavery to establish the first African Presbyterian church. James's brother, Jeremiah, a celebrity preacher in his own right, 
had already made a favorable impression on New York's colored upper classes during a visit to the city in 1837. The couple landed at the most auspicious address in Black Gotham. An 1841 city directory lists them at 93 West Broadway, which housed the pharmacy and medical offices of Dr. James McCune Smith, who was the first black American to earn a medical degree and a leading intellectual of the anti-slavery movement. Dr. Smith received his early education at New York City's vaunted African Free School, whose graduates included some of the best-educated black men and women in the United States. Rejected by American medical schools for reasons of race, he had excelled at the University of Glasgow in, pardon me, in Scotland. He returned to a hero's welcome in black New York and established an unusual practice that included white patients. He devoted his literary gifts to debunking, quote, scientific theories of racial inferiority. Dr. Smith's backroom library served as an epicenter of activism, where black Gothamites gathered to strategize about how to defeat slavery in the South and advance the cause of racial justice in the North. At the turn of the 1840s, the group would have been intently focused on the predations of a kidnapping club that was abducting and trafficking African Americans into slave states. This danger reinforced the sense that African Americans would remain at risk as long as slavery existed anywhere in the country. The Gloucesters established themselves in Manhattan as the Library Conclave was parting company with the belief that moral argument would persuade white Americans to dismantle slavery. Dr. Smith's friend Henry Highland Garnet broke dramatically with pacifism in his 1843 call to rebellion speech delivered at the Colored Convention in Buffalo, where he urged four million enslaved people to revolt, even if it meant certain death and rivers of blood. Miss Gloucester plunged into Manhattan's merchant class. The city clerk granted her a license to sell used goods in October 1845. She was soon running a furniture business at 76 West Broadway in rough-and-tumble Lower Manhattan. Within a few years, she was pursuing deals with black landowners, pardon me, that's landholders, who were eager to turn a profit while also keeping as much wealth as possible in colored hands. One of her first purchases brought her a modest but strategically placed lot on West 88th Street in Seneca Village, the uptown settlement established in 1825 by African Americans who were fleeing racial terrorism in Lower Manhattan. She was unable to buy the West 88th Street property directly and instead acquired it through James. The transfer from him to her reflected her resistance to remnants of a legal tradition that regarded husband and wife as the same person. The couple got around this obstacle by selling the lot to the lawyer for the nominal sum of $10. The lawyer then transferred the land to Miss Gloucester alone for the same sum. As the historian Sarah Cedar Miller has pointed out, the deed that cemented Miss Gloucester's control over the West 88th Street lot reflected a wariness of property laws that favored husbands. The deed specifically precluded the possibility of a claim by her husband 
declaring that she held title, quote, forever and free, clear, and discharged of and from the debts, obligation, and control of her said husband, the said James N. Gloucester, and in like manner, and to all intents and purposes, as if she were a femme soul. End quote. In Anglo-American law, the term femme soul refers to a woman who is widowed, divorced, never married, or no longer legally subordinate to a husband. Ms. Gloucester's lawyer may have used the phrase as a reference to New York's recently passed Married Women's Property Act, but this assertion of independence would have had a personal meaning for his client. Ms. Gloucester was a novice investor when she took possession of the Seneca Village lot in the summer of 1848. Several years later, the city notified hundreds of people that their land would be seized to make way for Central Park. By this time, she held properties that were spread among Manhattan, Brooklyn, and Suffolk counties, Long Island. The Seneca Village lot came to her from William A. Smith and his wife, Sarah, an African-American farming couple from Franklin County, New York, near the Canadian border. She purchased yet another valuable property on 6th Avenue in the 50s from her friend and mentor, Dr. McCune Smith. The transaction that gave birth to Siloam Presbyterian Church in Brooklyn, where her husband served as the founding minister, shows how she combined philanthropy and money-making. She rented land to the congregation with an option to buy if the church was still extant five years later. The stewards of eminent domain were singing her song when they offered four and a half times the purchase price of the Seneca Village lot our real estate baroness-to-be was ready to close out that investment and move on to the next deal. But imagine her vexation when city records mistakenly attributed ownership of the lot to the Reverend James Gloucester. Some wives would have let the matter ride and worked out a handshake deal with their spouses, but Miss Gloucester was not inclined to settle the matter privately. Her lawyer filed a petition of clarification that stands out in the municipal record to this day. The document made clear to all concerned that Ms. Gloucester, not James, owned the property. A Voice for Radical Abolitionism Records show that Ms. Gloucester gave birth to ten children, not eight or nine, as has been reported. Two died quite young, and three others, including Rebecca, expired in their teens. Of the offspring who lived to the age of majority, five attended college and three, Emma, Eloise, and Adelaide, graduated from Oberlin in Ohio. The school's anti-slavery and gender fairness policies made it a preferred destination for members of the leadership class that W.E.B. Du Bois would later describe as the, quote, talented 10th. New York was a fiercely pro-slavery city, where abolitionists were always one riot away from being driven from their homes. Children of prominent anti-slavery households grew up with a keen sense of danger, but they also understood that families of means had an obligation to place themselves at the forefront of the fight. Abolitionism was the civic religion of the class. The Gloucester brood learned this lesson more directly than most, their mother frequented Plymouth Church in Brooklyn Heights, 
and would surely have taken the older children to hear its pastor, Henry Ward Beecher, the preeminent anti-slavery preacher of his day, a charismatic performer, Beecher dramatized the evils of slavery with mock auctions through which the congregation purchased the freedom of enslaved persons. The church is known today as the Grand Central Depot of the Underground Railroad. The great voices of radical abolitionism convened in the Gloucester living room. The Gloucester children knew Frederick Douglass. They were fond of his fiery friend John Brown, who stayed with their home family while preparing his assault on the Federal Armory at Harper's Ferry, which he hoped would spark a sweeping slave rebellion. The Gloucesters gave Brown access to a network of African Americans who might be induced to support his cause. But for Brown... Passing time with black people was emotionally fortifying. African Americans who embraced his invasion plan reinforced his sense of himself as the avenging hand of God on earth. Brown was a keen judge of human nature and could see that Elizabeth exercised authority both in her domestic life and in the public sphere. He referred to her as sister and is often quoted as saying that he wished she were a man so that she could ride along with his invasion band. The quote, as James recalled it, conveyed a more nuanced meaning when Brown told him, quote, I wish your wife were the man of you too. He was expressing a belief that Elizabeth would have joined the invasion in a heartbeat had gender not been an obstacle. He was also revealing his disappointment that James would not take up arms, even though he was free to do so. Elizabeth's interests included charity. In 1860, she served as, quote, the first directress of a fundraising project for the Colored Orphan Asylum, a refuge for parentless Negro children throughout the Northeast. That she led the effort suggests that she was the wealthiest, best-connected member of a group that included widely known members of the Northeastern Colored Elite. The Weekly Anglo-African reported that Beecher had, quote, generously given up his church on his regular lecture night to make way for a fundraiser. The church trustees granted free use of the building instead of charging rent. Beecher's celebrity ensured an interracial crowd so large that people were turned away at the door. Elizabeth and her fellow directresses stood out in their striped calico gowns and were, quote, as busy as the most industrious of bees. As they circulated through the crowd at the benefit, among the black business owners who contributed food to the event was the oyster king, Thomas Downing, whose popular Manhattan restaurant catered to wealthy white patrons while concealing fugitives from slavery in the basement. The colored elites viewed the evening as more than a charitable endeavor. A celebrant interviewed by the weekly Anglo-African wished for a magical means through which, quote, the entire white population, end quote, could see the gathering. His hope was that white people who experienced splendid Negro company would be divested of the racial, pardon me, racial hostility that hemmed in African Americans at every turn. The colored orphanage to which Miss Gloucester devoted her attention was housed in a handsome Greek revival building, perched atop a small hill, set between West 43rd and 44th Streets on 5th Avenue in Manhattan. The white men who looted and torched the edifice in the summer of 1863 announced themselves with cries of, 
burned the inward's nest. The mob carried away rugs, food, furniture, and clothing in a prelude to a campaign of terror that targeted African Americans. A number of people were lynched during the carnage. Mary and Albro Lyons tried to defend their home, but were driven away. When it was over, they returned to find their house in ruins and the furniture broken or stolen. This act of racial terrorism, which was known as the Draft Riots, reminded Negro aristocrats that they were no more secure in their homes than the poorest street vendor. By this time, the Gloucesters had moved to Brooklyn, outside the radius of the destruction. The matriarch's thoughts on the orgy of violence went unrecorded, but she could not have been surprised. After all, she had experienced similar horrors during her formative years in Pennsylvania. Miss Gloucester concluded long before her death, pardon me, her death that her family was incapable of managing her holdings, as she had so ably done. Moreover, she did not trust James to administer the estate fairly and in accordance with her wishes. Those views were reflected in the will she signed on June 19, 1861. The document placed the estate in the hands of outside trustees, a move that would have angered James no end, and ordered them to liquidate her assets and divide the proceeds into seven equal parts to be distributed among James and the couple's six children. This version of the will stood until 1866 when she filed a brutally worded codicil disinheriting Emma, quote, in consequence of undutiful conduct. Miss Gloucester could have left it at that, but clearly intended to wound Emma and cast her out of the family. To that end, she instructed the executors, executors to pay her wayward daughter the witheringly paltry sum of ten dollars and barred siblings who might precede her to the grave from leaving her any portion of the estate. That will reflected a dramatic fall from grace for the family's golden daughter. Emma had graduated from Oberlin with a specialty in literature in 1856, when there were probably no more than a few dozen black college graduates in all of the United States. Her betrothal to another luminary, Dr. Thomas Joyner White, one of the first African Americans to receive an M.D. from an American university, was the best conceivable match for a daughter of the colored upper classes. This union was meant to solidify the class gains that Elizabeth and James hoped to pass on to their descendants. But Thomas died of cholera not long after the couple settled in Ontario. Chatham, a community at the terminus of the Underground Railroad, which was known as the Black Mecca, once back in Brooklyn, Emma appears to have either cohabited with or married a man of lower station. This choice touched on a primal fear of the colored elites that their daughters would squander hard-won social capital and succumb to downward mobility. Emma's misfortunes persisted after her mother's death. In 1885, she was working as a storekeeper in Manhattan when her clothing went up in flames. When she died... James laid her to rest in Greenwood, which might not have been possible had her mother still been alive. Five years later, James took his own place in the shadow of Elizabeth's burial monument. The prosperity that Miss Gloucester had wanted, me, wanted for her descendants failed to materialize. The wealth she bequeathed to her children seems to have dissipated fairly quickly, 
Genealogical records strongly su suggest that the family line died out in 1981 when the last surviving heir came to rest in the family plot at Greenwood. The Lady of Remsen House seems not to have confided her thoughts to diaries or letters. Her remarkable life expresses itself through the business transactions that made her wealthy and influential, allowing her to champion the abolitionist movement and charities that cared for indigent children. Her story serves as a reminder that many wives and mothers who deserve to be seen as women's rights pioneers never climbed the steps of a speaker's platform, but succeeded in making the rights of women real in their daily lives. Next article comes from the Washington Post. It was published February 5th, written by Brian Broom. It's an opinion piece. It's not American fiction if it's true. I learned a few years back that writing a book is one thing, but selling it is quite another. To do that, you have to talk to book bloggers, appear on podcasts, attend live, pardon me, attend literary fairs, and conduct readings at bookstores. I did all these things for the first time during the height of COVID-19, and so all my initial engagements were on Zoom. I didn't like it at first. I'm awkward and uncomfortable in social situations, virtual or otherwise, but after a while I got into it. I started to enjoy talking about writing with people from different walks of life. I felt, at last, like an author. But what I had forgotten was that I was not just an author. I was a black author, capital B, and during one Zoom with a group of graduate students, I was reminded of that when a young student asked me why I chose to write, quote, black trauma porn. If you're unfamiliar with the phrase, don't feel bad, so was I. Black trauma porn, my questioner told me, is when the pain and trauma of black people are served up for the enjoyment and entertainment of white people. She basically told me that my book, Punch Me Up to the Gods, was another in a long line of too often told stories that depict black life in a negative light. In appearance after appearance, I was dogged by this charge. I was shocked. My book, after all, is a memoir. And yes, there's plenty of trauma in it. I know because I lived it. I'd like to think there's plenty of joy in it as well. I lived that too. And for a time, I wondered whether that questioner was right. But in the end, I decided the question wasn't whether I wrote black trauma porn. The real question is... Why can't black writers just write what we want to? So you can understand why I was perhaps a little defensive about seeing, quote, American fiction, the Oscar-nominated film based on the novel Erasure by Percival Everett. The film is about a black English professor named Thelonious Monk Ellison, played by Jeffrey Wright, whose books aren't selling, as a joke, he writes an over-the-top, stereotype-ridden novel of black life that he titles My Pathology, under the pseudonym Stag R. Lee. In one scene, Monk is in his well-appointed office writing a melodramatic fictional scene between a black father and son and their hatred for each other because the father was an absentee, a drunk, and a deadbeat who abandoned the boy's mother thus forcing the son to turn to a life of crime. 
a scene that plays right into the hands of a stereotype. In the film, audiences, particularly white audiences, eat my pathology up. So do the white publishers hungry for a buck. Parentheses. The film makes fleeting reference to real-life black authors such as Sapphire, who wrote the novel Push, about a horribly abused black girl growing up in poverty. Push was the basis for the Oscar-winning 2009 movie Precious, in parentheses. In American fiction, Monk is appalled by the reaction to his satire, but the enormous sum of money he is offered for it in the face of his mounting financial concerns proves too seductive, and the book is released, albeit under a different, even more provocative name, but he still can't fathom why anyone would want to read such drivel or why anyone would think that these melodramas were at all representative of black life, because, in his mind, they just aren't. Thing is, when I was growing up, I knew black girls who were devalued and abused, like Precious. I also knew black boys who turned to crime because they believed they had no other choice. My family was on welfare for a time because we were poor, and I don't like the idea that we should sweep such stories under the rug simply because some people believe they aren't good for the African-American brand. There are still black Americans who live under the conditions that fuel so-called black trauma porn. I think these stories should be told even if there are white people who seem to need to make a meal out of them or use them to pathologize all black Americans. There are still too many people who labor under the delusion that when black people are poor, it's a moral failing, but that when white people are poor, it's because it's because they've simply fallen on hard times. I'm old enough to remember when The Cosby Show first aired in 1984. At the time, there was a big debate over whether the show portrayed black families realistically. Some thought that the portrayal was sugar-coated and devoid of the real black experience. Others wondered why network executives had waited until the mid-80s to show black people in a more positive light. Maybe both were right but it feels strange to me that we're still having this debate today. Black American stories are as diverse as any other communities. No one story is the African American story. Some involve the racism we face, and some don't, but there's room for all of them. And that brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aftersight.org or by calling 303-786-7777.